This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jeffrey Feynman. Dr. Feynman is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, and Benioff Children's Hospital. He is also the Vice Chair of Pediatrics, the Director of the Critical Care Program, and the Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Service at Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. He is also a faculty member at the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the University of California, San Francisco, where he has had a lab that's been continuously funded for over the last several decades by the NIH, where he has studied pulmonary vascular resistance in the infant and pediatric population. Jeff, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You are an expert in pulmonary hypertension. Uh, could you update us on the current working definition of pulmonary hypertension, and of course, in particular, in the pediatric population. And what do we know about the epidemiology of pediatric pulmonary hypertension? I'd be happy to. First, just with the nomenclature, you know, pulmonary hypertension as a disease is really defined with a hemodynamic parameter. So it's defined as having a mean pulmonary arterial blood pressure of greater than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest and greater than 30 millimeters of mercury at exercise. And there is a lot of discussion now, actually, about redefining that to as low as 20 millimeters of mercury. And the calculated pulmonary vascular resistance uh, is greater than three Woods units. Having said that, to call the disease pulmonary hypertension, particularly in the, in the pediatric population, I think is problematic because there are clinically relevant pulmonary vascular disorders within pediatrics, and single ventricle physiology, for example, is one um, example, where you may not reach that pulmonary hypertension criteria, yet you have clinically relevant pulmonary vascular disease. So many of us are starting to think of using the nomenclature instead of pulmonary hypertension, more either pediatric pulmonary uh, hypertensive vascular disease or just pulmonary vascular disease in general. The other part of the problem with talking about pulmonary hypertension is, as you know, it's, it's a broad spectrum of different diseases that ultimately you end up with elevated pressure and resistance, but a variety of different etiologies and probably a variety of different path, underlying pathobiologies. If you look at the last um, updated classification of pulmonary hypertension, it was in 2014 at the World Congress. There's five groups. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is the most common form in adult pulmonary vascular disease. So within pulmonary arterial hypertension, you have the idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, you have the familial forms of pulmonary hypertension, you also have congenital heart disease, which as you know is a major part of pediatric pulmonary vascular disease, and you also have drug-induced or toxin-induced, et cetera. Group two is pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease, which is very much more common in the adult uh, world. 
Group three is pulmonary hypertension due to lung diseases and or hypoxia. Altitude comes into play there. Uh, sleep disordered breathing, for example. And within pediatrics, you have a lot of your lung hypoplasias, chronic lung disease, interstitial lung disease, developmental lung disorders. And group four is more of a hematologic problem, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, not nearly as common in pediatrics. And then group five is uh, what we call unclear multifactorial mechanisms, variety of hematologic disorders, systemic disorders, metabolic disorders. So clearly there are significant differences in not only the epidemiology, but the pathobiology of pediatric versus adult pulmonary vascular disorders. Obviously, as, as you can see on this slide, there's a lot more chromosomal and genetic uh, aberrations associated with pediatric pulmonary vascular disease. You really have to think about developmental biology, the developmental disorders associated with the lung parenchyma and lung vasculature. And then pathological insults on a growing premature lung and vasculature. And then maturational issues related to the right and left side of the heart are very important. Obviously, this becomes not just a, a disease of the pulmonary vasculature, but it becomes a disease of, of right heart strain and failure. So there's some fundamental pathobiologic differences between adult and pediatric pulmonary vascular disease. And this next slide gets to the differences in epidemiology. Um, this is taken from the Pediatric Pulmonary Hypertension Network Registry, where we've put a database with 1,500 pediatric pulmonary hypertension patients in North America. Here you can see that actually the most common etiology right now of, of pediatric pulmonary vascular disease is group three, that associated with lung and hypoxia. And then group one, pulmonary arterial hypertension, is, is the second most. And then groups two, four, and five are very uncommon. That's compared to the adult epidemiology where group one is clearly the most common, followed by group two, and then group three. So clear differences in, in the epidemiology and the pathobiology. Unfortunately, we are stuck with the current adult classification, but I think we need to make modifications as it relates to the pediatric pathobiology. Jeff, thank you for that, that overview. Um, yeah, the definition, as you noted, encompasses so many different etiologies, and yet you've been studying this in the lab at the bench for several decades now. How did you go about thinking about how are you going to isolate this down to a model that you can study? Well, I, I made a decision long ago to focus on congenital heart disease. I think even though we, we call it all pulmonary hypertension, I think it's very clear that these are all different diseases. So I focus on congenital heart disease for several reasons. I'm a clinician scientist, and I work in the cardiac ICU. And as you know, perioperative pulmonary hypertension is, is a major source of morbidity and, and mortality. And so clinically, I was very interested in trying to understand uh, this disease and, 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 and help come up with, with therapies. Also, there's, there's some aspects of the congenital heart disease subpopulation that's rather unique to pulmonary hypertension. The overwhelming majority of patients that present with pulmonary hypertension are presenting with symptoms of right heart failure. So they already have very advanced disease. With congenital heart disease, and we don't really understand the, you know, when it started, how it started, why it started. With the subpopulation of congenital heart disease, we understand that it's 
the holes in the heart that create these aberrant um, mechanical forces on the pulmonary vasculature that lead to the development of pulmonary hypertension. And there's some very, very nice natural history studies showing over time these changes become irreversible. But we also know that if we fix these, these congenital heart defects in a, in, in a young age, that the vascular phenotype actually reverses. So there's several rather unique aspects of congenital heart disease. One, we have some sense of what the underlying insult, initial insult is. Two, we have a good sense of the natural history. Three, we know that it's one of the few that if you take away these abnormal mechanical forces, it can completely reverse, where other forms are never completely reversible. And four, there seems to be a, a, a time where it is no longer reversible. So even if you fix the defect, it continues to progress. And so if we can understand those mechanisms, we can really learn a lot about the, uh, the, this particular pathobiology and hopefully lead to better therapies. Here's a, a slide showing what we know about the natural history of, of pulmonary vascular disease with congenital heart defects. So these are, if, you, if the repair is not corrected, we know that those lesions that result in increased pulmonary blood flow, like a ventricular septal defect, that the ones that give you not only a lot of flow to the pulmonary vasculature, but a direct pressure head to the pulmonary vasculature, like a truncus arteriosus, if you don't fix them, 100% of them go on to have irreversible pulmonary vascular disease. And it occurs very early in life, within, clearly within the first two years of life, if not the first year of life. On the other end of the spectrum, the ASD or atrial septal defect, that is a pre-tricuspid defect where there's no direct pressure head to the pulmonary vasculature, but just increased flow. So flow alone, and that, the incidence of developing irreversible pulmonary vascular disease without surgery, is only about 10 to 20%. And for that defect, it takes actually decades for you to develop irreversible pulmonary vascular disease. So there's some interesting natural history lessons here that I think we can start to focus on and figure out potential mechanisms of disease. So it seems like the high pressure, high flow lesions are much more susceptible to pulmonary vascular disease versus the flow alone lesions. The other big um, subcategory of congenital heart disease that can lead to pulmonary vascular disease is those that result in increased pulmonary venous pressure like left heart failure, very common in the adult of group two, um, but mitral stenosis, obstructed veins, atriatum. Um, there we know much less about the natural history of the disease, and that's why on this table it's very variable. So the next slide is representative of what the vascular changes associated with a very common congenital heart defect, a ventricular septal defect. So first you see the blood going from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart, resulting in increased pulmonary blood flow. So initially the, the, the normal vascular phenotype noted by the red there is that there's a thin muscle layer and it's very proximal, it doesn't extend down to the periphery. The initial changes that you see over time with increased flow, and in this case pressure, is that the muscle layer gets thick, so it's called medial hypertrophy. The proximal layer becomes more muscularized. With time, 
the muscle layer then extends abnormally down to the periphery, where in the normal form is not present. And then ultimately, with irreversible disease, you actually lose your distal arterioles, so-called pruning of the vessels. The anatomic morphology was classically described by Heath and Edwards in 1958, and these were mostly autopsy specimens. And a big subset, actually, of these patients had unrepaired congenital heart disease. And it's very nice to categorize the, the spectrum of advancing pathological lesions. But Marlene Rabinowitz actually took lung biopsy samples of patients undergoing uh, repair of their congenital heart defects right here in Boston Children's Hospital and looked at the morphologic abnormalities and related them to the perioperative physiology. And she, she characterized them as three grades. Grade A, where you have some abnormal extension of the muscle down to the periphery with mild medial hypertrophy. Those patients tend to have altered reactivity of the pulmonary vascular bed postoperatively, but easy to manage, usually normal resistance, and clearly very reversible phenotype once you close the repair. Grade B had some abnormal ex extension of the muscle, but moderate to severe medial hypertrophy. And then grade C is where you actually started to see the decreased arterial uh, size and number. And those patients tended to be irreversible patients. And even if you fix them, they'd go on to have advanced pulmonary vascular disease. But there's a big gray area in the middle where it's not clear whether they're reversible or irreversible. And then just to touch on the right heart, because as we talked about, there's a lot of focus on the pulmonary vasculature appropriately, but many of the signs and symptoms that you show are related to the right heart failing. So here's just a cartoon as we can see different grades of pulmonary vascular changes on top. The pulmonary artery pressure continues to rise. And then at some point, when you get right heart dysfunction, your cardiac output falls. So the PA pressure actually can go down a little bit, but your calculated resistance continues to go up. But the point here is that this becomes a disease of right heart failure. And what's interesting is there are different right heart phenotypes. We, we all know that the adult thin right ventricle really does not tolerate an acute afterload very well. That's why an acute pulmonary embolus has such high morbidity and mortality. But there are some patients with pulmonary hypertension that actually the right ventricle becomes quite adaptive and it actually hypertrophies and can maintain a good cardiac output despite a very high resistance. And then there are other patients where instead of hypertrophying, the right heart actually dilates and fails rather quickly. And that, when we see those things, that, that dictates how aggressive we are with therapy. But I also think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. And you know why some right hearts are adaptive and others are not, and are, are there potential therapeutic targets to be, to be learned from those lessons. And that's a whole area that really needs to be uh, uh, investigated. As the pulmonary uh, vascular disease progresses in an unrepaired congenital heart defect, ultimately, instead of the blood going from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart, a portion or all of it begins to go from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart, where you get now desaturated blood going to the systemic circulation. And as you know, that's referred to as the Eisenmenger syndrome. And this is uh, the report in 1958 by Paul Wood, which is a, a tremendous, insightful report of these, of these patients.
Interestingly, if you look at the survival of patients with congenital heart disease, they tend to do much better than uh, other forms of group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, most notably idiopathic. This is a lovely long uh, study by Maine in his clinic um, where he followed them. In this case, I think it was 14 years, uh, 278 patients. And he, he showed that his survival of those with congenital heart disease was overall 85% at 10 years, 77% at 20 years, compared to their group, same clinic, same treatments, the idiopaths, 46% survival at 10 years, and a 38% survival at 15 years. Much improved uh, with congenital heart disease. Why that is, is very interesting. And again, I think further evaluation of that will lead to new therapeutic targets. But if you break up the congenital heart disease into kind of the different subtypes, here is an updated classification of congenital heart disease. There's the Eisenmenger syndrome. There's the ones with the large left to right shunts where I consider really pre-Eisenmenger. They just haven't started going right to left yet. But the pathobiology is probably the same. Third group's an interesting group, the pulmonary arterial hypertension with coincidental congenital heart disease. This is a subset of the atrial septal defects where they have very high resistance, a very small defect, a very small shunt. They are probably idiopathic and they happen to have a small atrial shunt. They probably don't have real congenital heart disease induced pulmonary hypertension. And then the patients where you made a decision that you think they're reversible with surgical repair, you operate, you get them through the surgery, and then they reemerge a year, five years, 10 years with advancing pulmonary hypertension. That's a group that the clinical phenotype is very, very aggressive, and that's why it's such a vital decision before you operate as to whether you think they're reversible or irreversible. Because if you look at the survival, top two curves are the Eisenmengers, the group one and group two, the Eisenmengers and the large left to right shunts, the pre-Eisenmengers. They have the best survival compared to the group three, which has the small defects, which I, the which really similar to idiopath. And then the last group where they're corrected, their survival at 20, uh, 20 years was 36%. So much, much lower than the Eisenmengers or the pre-Eisenmengers. So it's really vital to make the right decision in terms of surgical correction. Now, why Eisenmengers do better is fascinating to me. I think clearly they have the ability to pop off so when their pulmonary vascular resistance goes really high, instead of the right heart acutely failing, they just shunt more blood to the left side so they can get very blue, but they can maintain their left-sided output. There's no question that that um, attenuates the incidence of syncope and sudden death. But also there's some elegant studies showing that, that anatomically, the right ventricle kind of maintains its fetal dominance you know, the, the right ventricle, as you know, is dominant in the fetus. And you'll, you, there are pictures of 77-year-olds with Eisenmengers where the right ventricle looks identical to the fetal right ventricle. That there's something intrinsic about the right ventricle never getting to remodel as pulmonary vascular resistance falls because it doesn't fall normally. And this right ventricle, for let's say a large unrestricted VSD, is always exposed to increased flow and pressure. So we think that there's something related to maintaining that fetal phenotype and perhaps genotype that makes it protective. And again, the theme here is if you could 
with those insights, look at what those mechanisms are, there may be some nice therapeutic targets for the right ventricle that, could be, that can help these patients as well as other patients with right ventricular dysfunction. Jeff, that was a fascinating overview. So uh, you took congenital heart disease not as a convenient sample, but as you said, it provided you with the kind of perfect model to study because you had the natural history from fetus to outcome of unrepaired infants and children. Um, and from that work, you've been able to distill these distinctions between flow and flow with pressure. Um, now, what have we learned about therapies? Because, you know, we're upstairs in the ICU using these therapies right now. Take us through, how did, how did you and others learn about how to target the mechanisms that are causing uh, these issues? Sure. So, as you know, all, all the therapies currently being utilized in adults and in children are really based on endothelial biology. And um, there's a clear picture that early on with congenital heart disease that there's endothelial cell dysfunction. And it's interesting because, you know, in the old days, um, people would look at the blood vessels and, and knew, knew that all the action was at the smooth muscle cell layer, right? The constriction, the relaxation was mediated by the smooth muscle cell layer. And the endothelial cell was kind of just seen as a barrier cell layer between the blood and where all the action was, the smooth muscle cell. But it wasn't until the mid-1980s by a landmark study by uh, Bob Fershgott in Brooklyn, New York, downstate, um, where he did a very elegant, simple study, but he basically showed that the endothelial cells were making something that caused the blood vessel to relax. The smooth muscle cell then relaxed based on what the endothelial cell was making, showing this interaction between the two layers and that the endothelial cell was actually functional. And he first coined that an endothelium-derived relaxing factor, or EDRF, and there were years where we called it EDRF and went to EDRF meetings. And then, as you know, uh, it was subsequently shown to be nitric oxide. And so all the subsequent therapies have really been based on this. So I've had a, a, a real interest in, in early endothelial dysfunction as a major player in the pathobiology of congenital heart disease. It would make sense because these abnormal mechanical forces are first being seen by the endothelial cell layer. And so it was actually some nice, really uh, eloquent early observations from um, Boston Children's Harvard initially that I think really laid the groundwork for this unifying hypothesis of early endothelial dysfunction in the pathobiology of pulmonary hypertension related to congenital heart disease. So this next slide, I think, really, uh, for me, was fundamental in, in in pointing me into this, uh, to this world of endothelial cell biology. Maureen Rabinowitz, as you know, when she was at Boston, took these biopsy samples of children undergoing complete repair of their congenital heart defects. And these children were young, and they all had very reversible disease. And she did scanning electron microscopy, looking at the endothelial cell anatomy. And then she went on to show that there was alterations on von Willebrand's factor production suggesting not only anatomic aberrations of the endothelial cell, again, early on, before they have any significant disease, but also functional aberrations of the endothelial cell. So this slide represents the, that landmark study by Selemeyer, 
This was performed in the cardiac catheterization laboratory. They studied three groups of, of children. These squares are called controls. Those are actually children that had normal pulmonary vasculature, no increased flow or pressure. The open squares were young children that had increased pulmonary blood flow, but a normal calculated pulmonary vascular resistance, and they were generally all infants. And the triangles, or pulmonary vascular disease, those were older children, and they had advanced disease with resistances calculated greater than six wood units. So the y-axis is flow velocity, and that was determined by a catheter placed in the pulmonary artery. And then the x-axis is different conditions. C1 and C2 are control or baseline conditions. There were three increasing doses of acetylcholine given, and then sodium nitroprusside, or NP, was given at the end. What you can see is the control patients dilated nicely in a dose-dependent fashion to acetylcholine, no surprise. And then they also dilated nicely to sodium nitroprusside. Again, not surprisingly. If you look at the triangles, the patients with advanced disease, so they have a lot of structural remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature, they don't dilate well to acetylcholine or sodium nitroprusside. The fascinating group to us was the open squares, the ones with increased flow, they're young, clearly reversible disease, normal calculated resistance. They dilate normally to nitroprusside, but they dilate just as poorly to acetylcholine as a group with advanced disease. Now nitroprusside is what we call an NO donor, or an endothelium independent vasodilator. It does not require the endothelial cell to make nitric oxide in order to dilate. It just donates nitric oxide by itself. Acetylcholine, on the other hand, is a clear endothelium-dependent vasodilator. Acetylcholine dilates by binding to a receptor on the endothelial cell and forcing the endothelial cell to make nitric oxide in order to dilate the smooth muscle cell layer. So what Selemeyer and colleagues were showing were that patients that were young, had increased flow, normal resistance, functionally had endothelial cells that were not capable of making nitric oxide to the same extent as normal children. To me, this study was really uh, classic evidence that even young patients with early disease had significant endothelial dysfunction as an underlying pathobiology. Uh, well, Dr. Feynman, thank you for walking us through that study. This is very interesting. How does that translate or does it translate to what we know about perioperative morbidity in these patients with increased pulmonary blood flow, and in particular, increased pulmonary blood flow with pressure? Right. Well, that's, that's a great question. And actually, it, it, this, the very same year of Selmeyer's study, there was what I think was a landmark study from this institution with Frank Hanley and Aldo Castaneda looking at uh, the timing of repair of truncus arteriosus. And it really was a combination those studies that really um, stayed with me in terms of endothelial dysfunction. So back, back in those days, uh, truncus arteriosus was really a high-risk surgery because of significant morbidity and mortality related to pulmonary hypertension. And because of that, the approach that we all took was for that to try to get a little bit older and show signs of of the pulmonary vascular resistance falling, which means that they had signs of increased pulmonary blood flow. So we'd often try to get them to go out four or six weeks of age before repairing them, thinking that 
if their pulmonary vascular resistance has fallen, that they'd have less pulmonary hypertension perioperatively. What doctors Hanley and Castaneda showed was actually the opposite. They showed that the patients that were operated on sooner did better in terms of, of outcomes, and they came out of the operating room with lower pulmonary artery pressures than the ones that were done later, and they had much less pulmonary hypertension episodes if they were done earlier. So they concluded, and I completely agree, and the field 30 years later completely agrees, that the longer the pulmonary vasculature, and I would add the endothelial cell layer, is exposed to these abnormal forces of increased flow, the shear that's associated with that, and the pressure and the cyclic stretch that's associated with that, the worse it is for the patient. So by repairing them very early on, you minimize that time, and in fact, the endothelial aberrations are less, and that relates directly, I think, to improved perioperative outcomes and decreased perioperative morbidity related to pulmonary hypertension. Just as a reminder to the audience, as you can see in the diagram, that uh, there's variations on the theme, but a truncus arteriosus is basically where the pulmonary arteries are coming off the common aortic trunk. So, it's, so it exposes the pulmonary vasculature to very high pressure and flow. Those observations and studies really have led to this kind of unifying hypothesis that particularly with congenital heart disease, that the initial insult is that pressure and flow result in an early endothelial injury. And that results in the alterations in the vasoactive factors that the endothelial cell makes, such as nitric oxide, prostacycline, endothelin-1, alterations in reactive oxygen species generation, alterations in extracellular matrix, and the combination of these things and probably many other things that we don't understand yet results in the two fundamental processes of this disease where there's intense vasoconstriction and significant vascular remodeling of the pulmonary arterioles. This is a cartoon of those three endothelial-based cascades and showing the nitric oxide cascade on the left, the endothelin cascade on the right, and the prostacycline cascade in the middle. And there's a lot of data both in animal studies and in humans suggesting that with pulmonary vascular disease, the nitric oxide cascade is downregulated, as well as the prostacycline cascade. Both nitric oxide and prostacycline promote vasodilation, and they inhibit smooth muscle cell proliferation, so they keep the muscle layer nice and thin. And the thelin, on the other hand, which has been shown to be upregulated in pulmonary vascular disease, is a potent vasoconstrictor, and it actually causes reactive oxygen species generation and smooth muscle cell proliferation. So all of the therapies to date, and as you know, over the past decade, they've increased significantly. They're all based on either augmenting the nitric oxide pathway, augmenting the prostacycline pathway, or blocking the endothelin pathway. Now, the survival of these patients has improved dramatically with the advent of these therapies. And we really hope that as new therapies emerge, as, as our understanding emerges, that in fact will ultimately be able to cure some of these patients. But this endothelial biology, understanding the underlying pathobiology, has really led to a tremendous emergence of new therapies.
Jeff, that's absolutely fascinating work. Has that translated uh, to an animal model? Uh, that is, is there a model that exists where you can examine uh, the outcomes for a lesion that's producing high flow versus a lesion that's producing high flow and high pressure? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So that's exactly what we've been investigating for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, we, we have a large animal model, and we initially uh, created a model that results in both high flow and high pressure and we showed that these aberrations, these endothelial cell aberrations uh, occur dramatically and they occur very, very early on. For example, the endothelial cascade, which again promotes vasoconstriction and smooth muscle cell proliferation, that's upregulated in our animal model within the first week of life. So they're born, the pulmonary vasculature starts getting exposed to increased flow and pressure, which is abnormal. And within four or five days, there's a massive upregulation of the endothelin cascade. The levels are high. The good receptor that mediates nitric oxide is down. And the bad receptor that mediates uh, vasoconstriction within a couple weeks later is markedly elevated. Conversely, on the nitric oxide side of the equation, we show that within the first month of life that the enzyme that is making nitric oxide, endothelial nitric oxide synthase. That enzyme, which classically gets stimulated by flow or shear, because there's flow, is massively upregulated. But instead of making nitric oxide, the enzyme is what we call uncoupled for a variety of reasons, and it actually makes reactive oxygen species. So instead of so that results in decreased what we call bioavailable nitric oxide. And in addition, it's, it's make, causing oxidative stress, which causes further injury to the vasculature. So that is the work that we've done with a model of high pressure and high flow. So to get to your question of, of kind of translating the natural history of a flow alone lesion like an atrial septal defect versus a flow and pressure lesion like a truncus arteriosus, we just recently created a flow alone model and compared it to what we're calling the shunt model that I just described. So the flow alone model, what we do is we just ligate the left pulmonary artery. So the right lung now gets twice as much pulmonary blood flow, but without the direct pressure head uh, that's seen with a truncus arteriosus or an aorta pulmonary window. This is a um, CT angiogram comparing, they're all about a month of age, and the controls are twin age match controls. And this is just the anatomy of the three models. The shunt on the right side has very large engorged uh, pulmonary vasculature compared to the control. And the LPA ligation shows a normal, relatively normal right side and no left pulmonary artery. What we've been able to do is culture the cells um, and they maintain a phenotype, which is very, very helpful. And this is something called RNA sequencing. And so the control cells, the endothelial control cells are in the dark blue. The shunted cells are in the light blue and the flow alone or the LPA cells are in the red. And what I hope you can appreciate is kind of this clustering in terms of their genome is that they're very, very different these three groups of animals. And then this heat map 
the things in red are showing an upregulation of genes. The things in green are a downregulation in genes. And I hope you can appreciate the marked differences in the pattern of gene expression between the three models. So next we try to look at kind of the functional uh, differences between, between the three groups. And so as you know, classically, patients with, with pulmonary hypertension have what we call increased vascular reactivity. It could be a stimulus like hypoxia or alpha adrenergic uh, activation that causes pulmonary vasoconstriction in all of us. But if you have an abnormal pulmonary vasculature, it can be very, very intense. So we challenged these three animal models with either acute alveolar hypoxia or this drug called U46619, which is a thromboxane mimic. And as I think you can appreciate in the dark blue, this is a change in pulmonary pressure in response to those insults, that these shunted animals, flow plus pressure, have a marked increase in pulmonary pressure in response to them. The control, or the normal lambs in light blue, have a much attenuated response, and the flow alone have somewhat of an intermediate response. So that was in the intact animal. If we take the pulmonary arteries out and hang them in a muscle bath, we can do similar studies with different increasing doses of drugs. And in this case, we study norepinephrine, the same color coding. I think you can appreciate that the shunted animals, pressure and flow, have a marked increase in reactivity to norepinephrine, where the flow alone are very similar to normal animals, much more attenuated response. If you look at the morphology, we talked about smooth muscle cell layer being thick in this classic disease. Well, again, these, these animals are only four weeks old. They're very, very young, yet they have some medial hypertrophy in the pressure and flow needed group, the shunted group, where the LPA ligation or the flow alone, their blood vessels look normal. And lastly, a couple of things we've been looking at, the ability of the endothelial cells to actually make new blood vessels or angiogenesis, they're budding. And in fact, the pressure and flow stimulus seems to increase their ability to do that, as opposed to the flow alone, which seems to be intermediate compared to the normal ones. Now, whether that's adaptive or maladaptive early on is not clear to us. But the other thing that's um, interesting is their resistance to apoptosis or natural cell death. The feeling being that an anti-apoptotic or proliferative state is pathologic. I hope you can appreciate in this slide that the shunted animals, this is TNF-induced apoptosis, it's kind of a classic assay. The cells from the shunted animals don't apoptose nearly as much as controls. But again, the flow alone, the LPA ligation, they're somewhat intermediate. So it seems like the stimulus of pressure and flow is very different than flow alone. And then we've just started to look at some of the basic endothelial functional targets um, that are classically been targeted, endothelin-1 and nitric oxide. And where we're going with this is, let's start with the drugs that we have. And can we learn about different physiologic insults within our patient population? what endothelial biology is perturbed with different insults. And maybe we can start by taking the drugs that we have and targeting the use of them based on the underlying physiology. There's a lot of work to go on.
to try to get new therapies, but let's just start with, with the targets we have. So here you can see lung endothelin levels. Again, we've shown previously, and I've spoken about that the shunted animals have marked elevation in, in endothelin levels. But the flow alone animals, really, it's, it's somewhat maybe intermediate, but um, not very different than control. And then if you look at the protein levels of the precursor, lung prepro ET1, you can see marked elevation of the shunt in, with pressure and flow, but the flow stimulus does not nearly generate uh, the upregulation in, in endothelin 1. If you take these cells and then apply them in vitro to mechanical forces, if you stretch them, which is, we think that one of the stimuli associated with pressure, distending and stretching the pulmonary artery, you can see a marked elevation with cyclic stretch of endothelin 1 levels. But if you just expose them to shear, which is associated with flow or physiologic shear, not abnormally high shear, endothelin levels actually come down. Again, suggesting that perhaps those lesions with pressure head are more prone to have an upregulation of endothelin 1. Those may be the patients we want to make sure we're blocking that cascade, where the flow alone patients, maybe we don't need to block that cascade. And lastly, with the nitric oxide, we've talked about the enzyme that makes nitric oxide, nitric oxide synthase, classically stimulated by flow or shear. Makes sense that blood flowing across the endothelial cell will stimulate nitric oxide production, keeps it nice and relaxed in the normal state. You can see in the bar on the left, looking at these, this enzyme protein levels, that both in the shunt and in the flow alone, the, these enzyme, the protein levels of this enzyme are markedly elevated. They both have flow as a component to their defect. However, if you look at the end product, are they making nitric oxide? In fact, as we showed previously, the shunted animals have this uncoupled enzyme where they don't make nitric oxide, and in fact, they make reactive oxygen species. You can see in the shunted animal that the, the amount of nitric oxide in the lung is actually significantly lower. But the flow alone actually is making nitric oxide, and they have similar bioavailable nitric oxide levels to control. So even though they're both upregulated by the flow, it seems like the pressure associated with it causes further perturbation of the enzyme and actually uncouples it, where just flow alone seems to result in nitric oxide production. So kind of to summarize where we're going with all of this work is, we believe that me combined mechanical forces of pressure and flow result in abnormal vascular remodeling, abnormal functional vascular reactivity, uh, endothelial cell proliferation, angiogenesis, and, and, and anti-apoptosis and marked endothelial dysfunction, particularly what we're starting with is a marked elevation endothelin 1. Full alone, however, seems to be an intermediate phenotype. And where we want to get with this work, and as you could saw in the heat map, there's a lot of genes to explore here, that we want our therapy to be informed by the physiologic etiology of the particular pulmonary vascular disease or the congenital heart disease causing the pulmonary vascular disease. And I think in general, what our pulmonary vascular disease therapy goals are is to optimize the endothelial-based therapies. We've got some great ones. There may be more targets here within the endothelial cell pathobiology that can be optimized. Right now, we have no targets focused on the smooth muscle cell. 
there's clearly a lot of aberrations there. There's a lot of nice work showing abnormal metabolic pathways in the smooth muscle cell that are, are going to be targets. As we talked about with Eisenmengers, there's lessons to be learned there in the adaptive and maladaptive right ventricle. By looking at those mechanisms, perhaps there's targets to improve RV function in these patients. And then we're learning more and more about genetic predispositions to this disease. And as, as we learn more about these genes and then their associated signaling abnormalities, perhaps there's targets there that we can get to. And as you know, Dr. Burns, currently our therapy is rather crude. It's, we have three types of drugs. Again, augmenting nitric oxide, augmenting prostacyclin, and blocking endothelin. If we have mild disease, we give one of these drugs. If we have moderate disease, we give two of these drugs. And if they have really bad disease, we give all three types of these drugs. It's not based on any underlying mechanism or pathobiology. We must get to a place within congenital heart disease, but within the field overall, where the therapies must be informed by understanding the under, underlying pathobiology, as opposed to how bad the disease is. Well, Jeff, that's a wonderful overview of several decades of work by you and others that's helped ad advance our thinking. And as you just summarized, right now we're still in the um, we're still in the era of one size fits all. It's all pulmonary hypertension, and here's three medications. But the work that you're doing and others around the world, uh, I think we can see that we're entering um, a more precise area uh, era where we'll be able to target our therapies. So on behalf of colleagues around the world, uh, thank you very much for being with us today and for all the work you've been doing. Thank you for having me, and thank you for all the work that you do. Really appreciate it. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.